Hello, Krista. Hello, Peter. Good to see you again. It's it's actually 12 years since we met here in Stockholm. Do you remember? I do remember the meeting. I, you know, I wouldn't have known it was 12 years, but you know, if if I think something is eight years, then it's bound to be 12. That's the way things go. <laughs> Peter Singer, very welcome to Flitanka's podcast. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to talk to you again. It was 12 years since you came to, to visit us in Stockholm and um, we published your book, The Life You Can Save. And now we have just published um, uh, One World Now, which looks right. like this right. in yep. Swedish. Yeah. Um, uh, first of all, tell me, you, you wrote this book in... Twen- uh, 2015, right? This uh, the, the One version. World Now version, yes. I had written an yes. earlier book that was just called One World, yeah. uh, which came out in about 2002. In fact, uh, you know, fairly shortly after 9-11. Um, and right. I remember having to sort of update it as it was getting ready to go to press. But um, but that became rather dated, so I fully updated it. And, uh, and Yale thought that they should retitle it to indicate it that it was really a different book. Um, so that's why I came out yeah. of the world now. The first I'd like to ask you is actually a lot of, a lot has happened also since you wrote this one. I mean, Absolutely. you had the big migration crisis in 2016 and now, of course, the pandemic. Is there any thoughts in this book that you would reconsider or think differently about because of these, hap- these things that have happened? Well, that's a very interesting question. And I think if you'd asked me that question a year ago, when Donald Trump was president of the United States, yeah. I, I, it would have been hard to be optimistic about the idea that we are one world and that you know, we are going to move forward in that direction. Now, um, with, with Biden in the White House, uh, with him you know, holding this climate summit that he has just held, uh, which I think went reasonably well, although, you know, of course, not all leaders um, made the right commitments. And I include Australia's prime minister, who I think made a very soft uh, commitment there. Um, But, you know, it's clear that the United States is again engaged in the world and is again wanting the world to move forward together. Uh, And that's a promising sign. Um, I can't say, you know, more than that it's promising at this stage. We have to wait and see. But um, yes, I, I still I think that the basic analysis of the book in 2015 was that there are global problems that can only be solved at the global level. And climate change is the uh, example par excellence of that. So um, I think this is, is still the case. Now, you mentioned migration, um, which is a rather different sort of question. And I had never advocated in the book open borders. Um, I think that's simply unrealistic, uh, given where people are, given the, uh, I guess, residual, you know, I don't, I don't know what you want to call it, xenophobia, racism, whatever, um, that uh, people have to large numbers of foreigners coming into their country. So, you know, well before 2015, um, and in fact, partly from the experience uh, in Australia, my native country, um, I had come to accept that for any political party to advocate taking everybody who wanted to go to that country or even taking every person who wanted to claim asylum in that country was going to be a recipe for um, boosting the right-wing nationalist parties. Uh, And of course, that is what happened in Europe after 2016. Um, some countries, they took power in uh, Hungary and Poland, let's say, and uh, the United Kingdom really too, even if not as not an extreme form as in Hungary and Poland. Um, mm. And uh, and in, of course, in the United States, really. Um, mm. So I think you have to be realistic about that issue. And you have to say, of course, we should do what we can to help humanitarian resettlement, to help uh, refugees and asylum seekers. 
but but we have to do it within limits. Um, we can't simply open the borders and say that it's one world because at the moment governments are um, elected, if they're elected at all, they're elected by their own citizens and their own citizens are not going to go for open borders. Unfortunately, of course, from an ideal yeah. point of view, but that's the way it is. But do you consider this a practical problem? I, what I mean is that do you think that our moral intuitions will develop in whatever, hundreds of years maybe, to not be xenophobic? I hope so, yes. Um, I do hope so. But um, you know, that seems to me to be one of the more deep-seated elements of human nature. Um, you know, no doubt one that has evolved over um, millions of years. Uh, and so I think that's harder to overcome and may take longer to overcome than our you know, dislike of uh, changing our carbon-based uh, energy system or uh, mm. uh, driving you know, carbon-fueled vehicles. I think those are things which don't have such deep resistance and therefore we may be able to change earlier. Why do you think it is the case that during the whatever thirty last thirty years or something like that? Why do you think that it's the case that people seem to elect more authoritarian and more nationalistic and even more religious leaders, except for Trump, <laughs> than, than before? Yes. Why is that psychologically? Um. Not sure that I can explain that. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of more uh, nationalist leaders, uh, I do think that um, refugees and asylum seekers have unfortunately been uh, one of the precipitating factors in people mm -hmm. moving to the right. I mean, you could see it, as I say, quite clearly in Australian politics, um, where the conservatives one power and where for a time we got well we you know a, a small fringe party which was gaining votes um uh, a kind of party that had not existed in australia before that actually was gaining small number of seats in in both federal and state parliaments um and that was was related to the asylum seekers that we had coming in boats across from indonesia uh mm. and so at first the main opposition party the labor party tried to take a principled stance on this But after losing, I think, two federal elections um, where that was clearly one of the issues, they they dumped that policy. And now it's only the Greens who have a principled policy. And you know, they can do that because they're a, a niche party. If they get 10, 12, 15 percent of the vote, they're delighted. Um, so, mm. yeah, there's that many people who will support them, but they won't um, ever win government with that policy. Well, mm. when I say ever, that's wrong. You, you asked me about hundreds of years. I hope they will. But... Uh, <laughs> They won't. They won't. Certainly won't in my lifetime, and uh, I'm not sure about the lifetime of, of younger people either. It will take no. time. I still find it so strange to, to to comprehend the fact that people now tend to believe in you know conspiracy theories like the QAnon, for example, that are so absurd. Uh, they're so extremely fringe and still they seem to gather so much people. So so the old idea of sort of education and enlightenment thinking didn't help, obviously. How, how do you think about yeah. that? You're right about that. I'm, I'm, I am very troubled by that. Um, I uh, have recently been editing an edition of um, Mill's Utilitarianism, John Stuart Mill's 19th uh -huh. century uh, utilitarianism. Um, uh And uh, it's you know it's so clear that he has this idea that we are making progress, that we are becoming better educated, that we're becoming more rational, that we're all going to change in these positive directions. Um, mm. And I, you know, I, I did wonder what what would he say about the world where there is this resurgence of crazy ideas and uh, religious beliefs, which he also was not supportive of. Um, mm. So. Uh, It's 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 hard to fathom, uh, in a way, harder to fathom the conspiracy theories than the religion, because I suppose religion does bring some psychological comfort to people in a yeah. in a world of uncertainties. Um, then the idea that there is a God looking after you, that you will have uh, an afterlife in which you will be reunited with your loved ones, and so on, uh, you know, that's comforting, and you can see what the psychological appeal is. 
But um, yeah, these bizarre conspiracy theories, um, why people believe in them, uh, I don't know. Maybe that's almost become a kind of alternative to religion, that there is a kind of a, mm. a belief that binds some people and they feel a kinship with each other because they have these beliefs. They think that they know some kind of truth that has been suppressed and that other people don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking a bit the same. Maybe it is not the <clears throat> cognitive content of the, the of the beliefs that is important to them. Maybe it's the social uh, the social in group uh, that you share it with other people against the establishment. That might be the the reason why they believe them. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's quite possible. That it is that that uniting factor with a particular group. And of course, it, it helps them to explain some, you know, setbacks or defeats that they have as to why the world yeah. isn't going the way they would like it to go. It's because there's this powerful conspiracy that they must overthrow. It's a kind of Manichaean version of the world in black and white terms. Yeah, yeah. But then, then also, after you wrote the book, uh, of course, Trump came, but also the corona pandemic came. And in some ways, wouldn't you say that the pandemic has shown that, at least to some extent, that cooperation in one world actually works with the vaccine development and the very fast development and, and uh, distribution of vaccine? Uh, you could say that, but the flaw in that argument is that the vaccine has not been distributed on a global basis. Um, no, I think that the... Uh, 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 the the director general of the World Health Organization said last month that there'd been 400 million doses of the va of the vaccine had been distributed, um, and 148 countries had received doses, but 75% of the doses had gone to just 10 countries, of course, affluent countries, and the mm. other 138 countries had to share uh, just one quarter of the doses that had been manufactured. Uh, And we're seeing now, particularly in India, this huge uh, crisis where um, India doesn't have enough vaccines. I see that Biden promised, uh, I think, 60 million vaccines. But really, you know, India should be allowed to manufacture the, the vaccines. I, I do talk about this in the book about the intellectual property rights that yeah. um, were, um, were enforced by the wealthy nations and wealthy companies um, against the poorer nations. And... The precedent here is the HIV AIDS crisis in Africa, where eventually public pressure did mean that the manufacturers of the life-saving antiretrovirals um, allowed India to manufacture and export very cheaply to South Africa and, and other African countries. Um, and that mm -hmm. saved uh, millions of lives. Um, but we haven't seen that happening here. Um, I'm not quite sure why. I think that we do need a more global globally fair system of uh, producing, financing, and paying for uh, vaccines and other pharmaceuticals, other life-saving drugs. Yeah. But would you, would you agree that at least on the scientific level, the global cooperation worked when it ca came to developing the vaccines, so to speak, sharing knowledge? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, certainly knowledge was shared between Uh, Europe, the United Kingdom, the United States. Um, mm. I'm not sure that the Chinese shared knowledge or the Russians. I, um, I could be wrong, but um, uh, mm. from I haven't seen that they that they did. So no. I, I don't know that it's quite been global. But no, of course, yeah, no. it's good that knowledge is shared all the same. Okay, um, let me ask you a little bit about your current projects. You are you are working with this Journal of Controversial Ideas. That's a wonderful name <laughs> of, of a journal. <laughs> tell me, tell us about that project. What is it about? So this project is about um, trying to do something to prevent the repression of ideas um, in what. Uh, I and my co-editors, uh, Jeff McMahon and Francesca Minerva, uh, see as um, a, a narrowing of tolerance for controversial ideas. And uh, you know, we, we were led to this by some incidents that happened in uh, academic life. It's not only in academic life that these things happen, but um, 
uh, incidents in which um, young academics in particular put forward what we thought were quite reasonable arguments, let's say arguments that deserve to be out there in the public arena. We're not saying necessarily that we agreed with them, but uh, that we thought had, had merit and in a free forum of discussion, um, you know, should be examined and, and maybe flaws would be found and maybe they would be refuted. But, mm. you know, that was the way we thought debate proceeds in, in academic life. And instead, um, there, was, uh, there were calls for retraction of the papers from academic journals, um, not on the grounds really of the arguments being flawed, but on the grounds that um, they may cause offence to some disadvantaged minorities, for instance. Uh, and uh, um, there were you know, attempts to, well, sometimes successful uh, petitions against people taking uh, appointments where people had been appointed to jobs and uh, then the appointments had been rescinded because of protests. So uh, it was becoming clear to us... You're talking about the, the council culture, basically. The council culture, I guess, is the popular name for it. That's right. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, so um, it seemed clear to us that uh, younger academics not in tenured positions were going to have to be very careful about what they wanted to say and that that would, would restrict freedom of thought and discussion and prevent some worthwhile ideas getting out into the public arena. And uh, we thought originally this idea came from Francesca Minerva, who was herself uh, attacked for an article about infanticide that she wrote and, and actually had uh, death threats that worried her mm -hmm. very seriously. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we thought that one way of overcoming this would be to allow people the opportunity to publish anonymously or under a pseudonym. Um, because uh, then the idea could be put out. Um, but, uh, and of course, people have published under pseudonyms before, but not to our knowledge in a peer-reviewed academic journal. So that's what we wanted. We wanted rigorous standards of peer review and of high quality of academic argument. But we wanted people to be able to, they didn't have to, um, but to be able to publish under a student. And then later, if you know things get better and they want to say, this was my article, they can do so. And we'll acknowledge that they indeed are the author. But, um, but uh, we wanted to create that possibility. And we see this as a useful way of fighting back against what's called cancel culture. Okay. Seems like a very good idea. But that means that you as an editor, uh, so to speak, uh, you know who is the public, who is the author of these texts. Um, I may not know, but uh, one of the editors will know, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. Mm. Uh, or know how to uh, contact that person. We, yeah, so... Um, that's that's true, but um, you know, we are not going to be pressured into uh, retracting an article because people don't like its ideas, as some other mm. journals have been. We're not going to be deterred from accepting articles uh, because they might be controversial, as other journals have. Uh, so we think that we have a valuable role to play, um, and we've also made the journal uh, open access and and free online. So uh, the first issue went out last week. And anybody who wants to read those articles can go to journalofcontroversialideas.org and um, can read the articles free there. And we're very happy that um, people have made this possible by uh, donating to us. If people want to support us, there's a support us tab on the website. And we're, we're happy to have, uh, you know, not necessarily particularly large donations. We would like to have a broad base of donors who will support us. We don't want anybody to... We don't want to be dependent on, you know, one or two very large donors. We want to have a wide spread of donors. We think that's the best way to ensure that we'll be able to continue to function, even if some of our donors don't like some of our articles. Hmm. I see, I see. So so how, how has the reception been since you went online with this? Do you get criticism for it as well? Uh, certainly we are getting some criticism for it. Um, some people don't like the idea of publishing under a pseudonym. They think that, that people lack accountability when that happens. Um, mm. And, you know, I agree that ideally people shouldn't have to publish under a pseudonym. But in the present mm. circumstances, that seems to me, for some of those people, better than not publishing at all. 
Um, one of the criticisms that we got actually interestingly was that the articles weren't all that controversial. They were expecting something more. Um, but, you know, okay. we obviously are limited by the uh, submissions we receive. I think we received, we published this in the editorial, I think we received uh, 68 submissions and uh, we accepted, after the peer review, we accepted 10 of them. Um, uh, and maybe there's a handful that have been referred back and haven't yet come back, you know, for, referred back for revision. Mm. So, um, yeah, we've been fairly selective, but, uh, uh, you know, we can't publish articles more controversial than those we receive. We hope that now that the mm. journal actually exists and has achieved quite a bit of publicity in the last week or so, more people will know about it, more people will send us their articles and we'll have a, a wider range of articles to achieve. And if people want controversial articles, I, I hope that we'll have them. <laughs> How is the peer review process um, uh, being done in this special case? Uh, it's been done as academic journals usually do, or at least I should say as philosophy academic journals use, usually do, because mm -hmm. in philosophy journals, it's normal for the papers to be reviewed by a reviewer who doesn't know the name of the author. Um, uh -huh. So authors are instructed to remove all identifying marks from the paper. So not only do you not put your name on it, but you also don't, say, as I wrote in my book, Practical Ethics, da-da-da, because yeah. then, of course, the reviewer knows who it is. Um, mm. so, so that's normal in, in philosophy. It's not normal in all areas of academic and scientific research, uh, but it is in philosophy. So, so that's how we're doing it. The reviewers don't know whose paper they're reviewing. Mm. I see, I see. Uh, th this, this cancel culture phenomena in the academic world, do you feel that it's actually... Uh, limiting the development of ideas right now? I mean, is it a, a real problem in the academic world now? I think it is, yes. I think there are certainly areas of discussion that are restrained um, by that. Um, the discussion of, of gender issues is, is one that's restrained by it. I know academics who uh, are very hesitant to publish their opinions, um, and in some cases... Uh, can't get their opinions published e even when they're not hesitant and they've submitted them to uh, to academic journals um, despite the fact that these are well-known academics who can get papers on less touchy subjects published um, mm -hmm. uh, they can't get them published on some of these topics so yes that's that's definitely one example and I think there's there are other examples as well mm. <clears throat> I found a very interesting article on on the journal of controversial ideas.org uh, called cognitive creationism. Mm -hmm. Do you know which one I'm referring to? I know, to? I do, yes, yes, I know the article well. <laughs> um, could, could, you, could you explain that concept a little bit? Because I think it relates to, to what we're talking about right now. Yes, and it is another of the issues that, um, where I think the uh, area of debate may be narrowed. So, of course, we know what creationism is. Um, yeah. mm. Creationism is the idea that the Earth is relatively young, that it was created maybe 6,000 years ago or whatever date, but anyway, that it's not millions of or even billions of years old. Mm. And I'm sure that listeners to Freitanka um, will know that the science shows that this is, is false, um, mm. that there is yeah. an enormous abundance of science showing that the Earth is not young but uh, that it's, it's very old and evolved in roughly along the lines that Darwin, or life evolved roughly along the lines that Darwin um, sketched. Now, um, cognitive creationism is saying that there are also people, you know, just as creationists deny that the earth is old because they want to believe a religious ideology about God having created the earth at this time, so cognitive creationists are people who want to believe an ideology about the e equality of opportunity that we all have to be to achieve equal success in any field. That is that um, uh, any differences between how able people are in various cognitive fields, whatever they might be, uh, whether it's the sciences or mathematics or uh, art or literature or something of that sort, um, that uh, these differences are results of culture or a disadvantage in upbringing um, and not making, a, you know, not, not making the effort to achieve in these areas um, and that little or none of them is due to inherited 
cognitive abilities. And the author, um, and this is one of those papers that was published under a pseudonym, um, the author is arguing that this is a kind of cognitive creationism that is, it's, it's again ignoring an abundance of science, which shows very clearly that we inherit a significant part of our cognitive abilities and uh, that you cannot expect, uh, you know, no matter how much you equalize the environment or education or anything of that sort, no matter how much you encourage people to uh, learn, you are not going to get an equality of cognitive characteristics simply by changing the environment. Mm -hmm. And that that also includes the rejection of science. Also, I guess includes uh, research on intelligence, for example, uh, as a part of the cognitive, as one one cognitive part. Yes, there there are certainly people who think that we shouldn't research the heritability of intelligence, um, and you know who uh, try to say that uh, IQ tests are all culturally biased and that they don't reflect um, uh, anything that's independent of culture or environment. And the author of this article is uh, maintaining that that's false. That um, that they do that. That well, anyway, that some IQ tests are not culturally biased. And in fact, the argument is that those that are least culturally biased, that are most formal, that do least with words and more with symbols or shapes, um, actually show up the uh, the differences, the cognitive differences. Um, Uh, and the author claims the inherited cognitive differences uh, as clearly or more clearly than than those that are that might appear to be culturally biased. Mm. Mm. Very interesting. But do, do, is it your opinion that sort of the scientific evidence for these things are as strong as the evidence for evolution? I mean, in respect to the creationism <laughs> in that field. So just let me be clear that the fact that we published an article doesn't mean that we believe it to be true um, okay. in all respects, yeah. right? Um, what it means is that the article was submitted to us, that we sent it to reviewers we believe to be expert in the field, that they recommended publication, or in some cases, they recommended uh, some revisions and then looked at it again and after revisions they recommended publication and we looked at it and we judged that these were reasonable judgments that the peer reviewers were making so no i'm i'm not committed to the standing by the claim that the science of inheritability of cognitive differences uh is as strong as the science that the earth was uh, existed more than six thousand years ago um uh, no i think that is a, a strong claim and maybe the author was trying to make a dramatic point through the title and through the comparison with yeah. creationism but i i think i think the article is worth publishing because it does make some interesting parallels and the case is stronger the case for saying that this what what's going on with cognitive abilities and their heritability is um similar to what's going on with creation science um You know, at first glance, that seems wildly implausible. But when you look at the article, the author makes makes out a better case for it than you would have thought was possible. <laughs> yeah, I, it was a very interesting read, I must say. Um, tell me, uh, are you still as involved with animal ethics as as you used to be, or are you focusing on new areas, so to speak, in your in your work? Um, so I, I think it would be fair to say that I have for most of the past, let's say 30 years, um, focused not so much on animal ethics. Um, I mm. thought that I'd probably said most of what I want to say in that area. Although I did co-author a book about food called The Ethics of What We Eat, uh, co-authored with Jim Mason in 2005. Um, but I, and I wrote some short pieces, some of which were published in a recent book called Why Vegan, uh, published in the Penguin Great Ideas series. Um, But I hadn't done very much in that area. And I had mostly looked at other things, including things like uh, One World and globalization. Um, mm. But I have now decided that I need to revise Animal Liberation. Um, the, 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 the main text, the body of the text of the book is now from 1990. So that's why that 30 years that I haven't really worked a lot in this area. Um, and I think the book does need a new edition. So. I'm going back to looking at it now um, and looking at. Can what I ask you? It, yeah. Okay. And uh, w- because this leads to a more general question, are there areas here that 
you would say that you actually have changed your mind or modified your beliefs or, or moral standpoints from from the I mean are you a different person when it comes to your moral beliefs now than you were 20 30 years ago uh, in some respects I am yes uh, so one change that's come in the last twenty uh, years or really two changes I suppose is um, I've modified the form of utilitarianism that I hold I used to be a preference utilitarian That is, I used to think that the value to maximize is the satisfaction of preferences. Um, I now have uh, gone to the more traditional hedonistic version of utilitarianism, that the value to be maximized is happiness and the reduction of misery and suffering. In, in that respect, I've come closer to the position of, of the Swedish philosopher Torbjörn Tansio, who is a hedonistic mm. utilitarian. Yeah, we, we just um, published a book by him. All right, very good. Mm. Yeah, so that's one thing. And then uh, in a way, a more fundamental change and somewhat connected with that change I just mentioned is that um, I used to be, I used to hold the position that ethical judgments uh, can't really be straightforwardly said to be true or false, um, that they were rather expressions of attitudes, expressions which had to be under certain constraints, um, particularly the constraint of universalizability, which did mean that there was a role for a reason to play. But still, my view was that they were prescriptions. They were not statements of fact. They were rather prescriptions about what we ought to do. Um, and I, I, I abandoned that position. Um, uh, and I discussed that in another co-authored book called The Point of View of the Universe, uh, co-authored with Katarzyna de Lazari Radek, a Polish philosopher, that appeared in 2014, um, mm -hmm. where I, uh, or we, uh, defend, we, we, the, the book examines the work of the 19th century utilitarian Henry Sidgwick, uh, who was an objectivist about ethics. And uh, we conclude that his arguments for objectivism are strong um, and That I regard myself since since writing that book, I've regarded myself as an objectivist about um, ethics and someone who can say that ethical judgments are true or false, um, not merely that they're expressions of attitudes or or desires. So, you, so what you're saying is that you've become more of a moral realist, so to speak. Yes, Platonist. that's that's. Well, I don't know about Platonist. Um, Platonist <laughs> okay, is, okay, going, really. is going a little far because you know I don't think that there's sort of forms of the good sitting up there somewhere. Um, okay, no, okay. But, but you know, and maybe some Plato scholars will tell me that Plato didn't really think that either. But um, yeah, but um, realist is is fine. Um, yeah, so mm. <clears throat> philosophers, uh, you know, the terminology switches. Um, we used to use subjectivist and objectivist, and then became fashionable to use realist and irrealist, and maybe they didn't mean exactly the same, but they meant quite a lot uh, the same. Um, but yeah, you could say that I'm a, a moral realist, sure. I mean, I, I'm curious about you as, as a professional philosopher, when you change your mind like that, is that a painful process? I mean, you've thought so much about this before as well, of course. Yeah. So you have sort of more invested in your positions than, than a layperson like oh, the absolutely. rest of us. Yeah, yeah. You see what I mean? That's true, yeah. Oh, no, that's definitely true. And um, particularly on this question of, of objectivism and or realism and irrealism, um, I'd taken a long time. I was somewhat slow to change, I think. Uh, so, you know, I was, uh, I studied at Oxford under Professor R.M. Hare, who was, or he called himself a universal prescriptivist. So he was not a, a descriptivist. And uh, I, I took over his position in uh, metaethics, which meant I was not an objectivist. Um, mm. But I was quite early on, still while I was at Oxford, I was uncomfortable with the limited role that that gave to reason. As I say, on his view, it didn't give no role to reason, but gave quite a limited role to reason. In particular, one could sort of But one, one could reject morality as a whole. One could be an amoralist. And on Hare's view, you were not making any mistakes or errors in being an amoralist. And that troubled me. And I spent a long time trying to write articles to show how within that framework, reason could play a more substantial role. Um, 
but I think in the end I had to admit that I had failed. Um, mm -hmm. So if you like a series of, it wasn't the main thing that I was working on. I was working more on practical ethics, but nevertheless, a series of articles I'd written from the early 1980s anyway, <clears throat> um, until the early 2000s, I admitted um, had not been successful in showing what I was trying to show. And yes, sure, that's, that's somewhat painful. And then you have to look <laughs> around for, for the next best position. If this doesn't work, what's left? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Does this mean that you are closer to where Derek Parfit was on this subject? Yes. Yes. Mm. Um, there are actually, two two philosophers. Uh, Derek, of course, is sadly no longer alive. But two philosophers who mm. were alive at the time that I was thinking about this and making this change <coughs> were Derek Parfit and uh, Tom Nagel. Um, yeah. And both both of them were um, objectivists or, or realists. Parfit didn't like the term real as much because he thought it still also had too much of, you know, this part of the furniture of the universe idea. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and so I, I read the drafts of uh, Parfit's On What Matters, uh, volume one mm. and two, when, when they were in draft for many years, Parfit always circulated these drafts and asked people for comments. And uh, that was certainly one of the factors in persuading me to change my mind on this. Um, and some comments that uh, Tom Nagel made at a conference where I spoke at New York University um, in the early 2000s, I think also um, had an impact and, and a review that he wrote of uh, some one of my works in uh, the New York Review of Books um, also made a similar yeah. point. Uh, speaking of Tom Nagel, <clears throat> what do you think of his ideas of consciousness? I, I, I might be wrong, but I got, I got the feeling that he's leaning towards panpsychism a bit. Maybe. Um, I'm not sure, yes. Um, I mean, a lot of people thought that he was somehow going religious, and I think that's clearly false. Um, he was not... Okay. He was not becoming religious in uh, any normal sense of that term. But... Um, Yes, perhaps he was. Well, he, he certainly was saying, you know, we're not going to be able to reduce consciousness to uh, any material phenomena and uh, we may never be able to understand consciousness by the normal tools of science. Um, and for some people that did seem like kind of giving up on the, what you might call the, the, the naturalistic sort of program of showing that, you know, hmm. there is only the natural world, the world that science can observe and there is no supernatural world um, and in one sense you could say well Nagel was saying well there is a supernatural world or anyway a, a non-natural world of, of consciousness and so on um, certainly he did, as I say he didn't think of it as supernatural in the sense of a divine being um, no yeah but yes um, look I you know I, I haven't really worked very intensely on these issues so I mm -hmm. don't think that my opinion on these issues is really worth very much, but I, I do see the problems that uh, Tom is raising. Uh, and, you know, if you were to ask me, well, do I think all of that's wrong? I would say no. I mean, it's maybe contrary to the way I was also thinking about the world, but I can't really say that it's wrong. Mm. You know, in that no, sense, I, I have I, to be, remain agnostic about it, really. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I I understand your your point. Um, I just find it uh, strange that you could say that something would be unsolvable by science, theoretically unsolvable, because you you can't know that until you've sort of solved it. You you, you can never know that it's unsolvable, right? <coughs> Do you agree? Yes, you can't know. You can't know for sure. Uh, but what you could do is you could you could say that there's some fundamental difficulties in thinking that the present tools that we have of science could mm. ever um, establish what this is. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think it would be too bold to say, and we will never develop ways of um, understanding what this is and how it relates to the material world. Let me ask you this then about that. I mean, I I, I, I get the feeling that panpsychism is sort of trending a bit. A lot of people talk about it now. The idea that, that consciousness is a sort of primitive quality in, in the matter itself and so on. And 
I'm trying to understand what kind of explanatory power that has, because to me it seems like it has no explanatory power at all, because still you have to explain how this quality in the atoms uh, sort of create an emerging consciousness. It doesn't do it in stones, obviously, so why? How does it yeah. happen? It must follow some kind of process. So so to me, panpsychism doesn't give any explanatory qualities whatsoever do you do you do you agree or not i do agree with that yes and i think in a way it's it's somewhat misleading to say that you know, consciousness in some sense is is everywhere in in the universe and in atoms because what we understand and you know what what tom himself said in his famous article what is it like to be a bat is that mm. um, you know consciousness is about there being something that is like to be that being so if you ask, you know, is a bat conscious, then you say, well, is there something that it's like to be a bat and to be navigating the world by radar and you know, sonar rather, sorry, and, and so mm. on. Um, and I, you know, the answer to that, I think, is yes. And, and I think it's important to say the answer to that is yes when you ask it about a bat. Um, and it's no, as you just said, when you ask it about a stone. <clears throat> and I'm pretty confident that it's also no when you ask it about a cabbage, although, you know, I'm not. 100% confident that it's no when I ask about cabbage. There's a mm -hmm. tiny chance, I think, that, that I'm wrong about that. So, but, but let's assume that, that that's correct. Then, you know, what we're interested in, I think, is, well, what is it about the accumulation of, of atoms or, you know, in particular ways, let's say in neurons in the brains of, um, of animals of various kinds, that enables us to say that consciousness is present, that enables us to say cabbage is not present, a chimpanzee, uh, it, it, consciousness is not present in a in a cabbage. It is present in a chimpanzee, and then of course we can go. You know, we can narrow the gap. We can say, well, mm. um, is it only present in mammals? No. Um, is it only present in vertebrate? Well, what about the octopus? A lot of people got interested in the octopus mm. because it's not a vertebrate, and the link, the evolutionary link between us and the octopus, is more distant, far more distant <clears throat> than that of any other creature where there's a plausible case to say it is conscious, I think. Um, mm. And I think the evidence with an octopus is that it is conscious. And perhaps this means consciousness evolved separately twice on our planet in different forms. Mm, but, um, yeah, but, but then what about, you know, what are we going to say about oysters or, or uh, insects for that matter? Some, you know, again, there's a wide range of insects. So what, you know, what, what I agree with you about that panpsychism doesn't really help is there's some kind of, if you assume panpsychism is true, there's still some kind of accumulation of atoms in certain ways that enable us to say the evidence indicates that there is something that is like to be an octopus. Um, mm. But the evidence doesn't indicate that there's something that it's like to be a cabbage. And you know, maybe I'd be prepared to say the evidence doesn't indicate that there's something that it's like to be an oyster. You know, mm. Maybe there isn't. Oyster's nervous system is much more rudimentary than many other creatures, including many invertebrates. Mm. Okay, yeah, okay, very interesting. Okay, let me go back a bit to, to your um, uh, animal liberation, and you say you're going gonna to rewrite uh, that. Do you think that... I mean, now we have a lot of discussions about uh, how, what kind of food we need to eat in the future. And one, one is, of course, insects. We're talking about growing insects as a, as, as a food uh, for, for humans. Does that cause moral issues, eating insects, when it comes to animal liberation? Well, it certainly raises moral issues. And, and the issues are along the lines of what we were just talking about. Um, mm. And that is... Uh, are insects conscious? And I'm sure that that is just too broad a question. And we really need to ask, you know, what insects are we eating, right? So uh, people eat crickets in some countries, you know, are crickets conscious? Possibly. Um, are mealworms conscious? Probably not. Uh, you know, you, you would make all of these yeah. distinctions. So we're talking about very different kinds of beings. Um, so when you say, is it okay to eat insects? It might be when we, you know, get to learn more. Uh, the answer might be, well, it depends what insects. Um, mm. And you also have to consider that if insects are conscious, then sort of rearing them and processing them for food would mean that there's a lot more centers of consciousness that are um, you know, 
possibly suffering, depending how they're reared, I suppose. Um, and uh, than they would be if we killed a cow because, you know, cows are so much bigger. Um, so I do think it raises issues. Um, I would still be prepared to say that it, it may be better to eat mealworms as a source of protein than to eat uh, cows or pigs or chickens um, because of the doubts about whether they can suffer. But I would prefer to eat uh, only plants or the other option that I think is promising is to eat meat um, that is grown from cells. So, mm. uh, you know, actually just uh, a month or two ago, uh, the first cultured cell meat went on public sale in, in Singapore. So you can now... Really? Buy, yeah. So far, it's not in supermarkets. It's only in some restaurants because I think it's not doesn't really compete in price with the chicken in a supermarket yet. Mm. But uh, yes, um, there was a restaurant that is serving uh, chicken, which tastes like chicken um, and is in fact composed of chicken cells, uh, but was, was grown at the cellular level. It was never part of a living organism. So, you know, maybe that offers a, a better future in the long run than, than cultivating insects. Oh, that's very interesting. So you, so you don't think that the ultimate goal should be to, to, to turn the world into a vegan eating humanity, uh, rather uh, these it, solutions. It, it, exactly. If you think that um, uh, the, the chicken, chicken meat can't be vegan, even if there was never a chicken involved, um, then I'm not um, advocating being vegan. Of course, people want to be vegan. They feel good on that diet. They think that it's healthier than eating chicken meat. Uh, that's absolutely fine. And there are some mm. reasons for thinking that that might be the case. But in terms of the ethical arguments about the treatment of animals, about um, contribution to greenhouse gases, about uh, pollution of the local environment from animal manure, uh, in terms of um, feeding them antibiotics, which mean that the antibiotics become resistant to bacteria, uh, or now concerns about pandemics and the growth of viruses like avian flu and swine flu. Um, mm. All of those issues would be eliminated by uh, cellular, cellular meat. So I think the ethical objections are eliminated. Um, and in that sense, if, you know, given that kind of meat, um, there isn't really a compelling ethical argument for being vegan in the strict sense. <laughs> what, what about wild animal welfare? Do, do we have a moral obligation to help wild animals? in some way? Well, um, I think we do if we know that we're really helping, not just a particular wild animal, but wild animals on the whole. Um, and if we can do so at reasonable cost and without upsetting the ecosystem. But uh, mm -hmm. I think those, those conditions are quite difficult to um, be confident about if we're really interfering in, in you know, wild ecosystems. So, mm -hmm. uh, I don't recommend at this stage of our knowledge and also at this stage of our animal abuse when, you know, we're doing so much more horrible things to tens of billions of animals in factory farms. Uh, I don't recommend that we really try to get practical about helping wild animals. Mm, okay. Uh, just a few last questions. Do, do you think that... Um do, okay, two questions relating to each other. Do you think that it is possible through sort of manipulation of our cognitive abilities to enhance our moral abilities, like, for example, psychedelic substances, for example. Uh, and if you believe that is possible, do you think we should do that to make, to make hum humankind, humanity more morally sensitive? And you understand what I mean? Yeah, I understand what you mean. Yes, certainly. There, um, yeah, there has been a bit of discussion about moral enhancement, I think, in which, um, yeah. again, the, uh, the Swedish philosopher Ingmar Persson uh, has yeah. written about that, along with uh, the Australian philosopher now in Oxford, uh, who actually I, whose graduate, uh, whose PhD I supervised, Julian Savalescu, um, mm. is a, another proponent of, of this. Um, so I think if, you know, if you could do that, I think that would be a good thing to do. Um, there's obviously a risk that only some people would do it and then other people would take advantage of them uh, you know that so um but if if we could make people in general um 
somewhat more concerned about others, concerned about reducing suffering and um, uh, helping others, being more altruistic, I think that would be a very good thing. Interesting. I know there is at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, there is now a research project when, uh, where, where you use uh, silos, what do you call it? Magic mushrooms. Psilocybin, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah psilocybin yeah, to uh, treat um, depression, for example. Yes, I think uh, that's quite promising. I think the use of uh, those drugs, particularly psilocybin, to, um, to treat depression does seem to be promising. And I'm pleased that it's again possible to do this research yeah. because of course for many decades it was illegal um yeah and uh yeah i, I hope we, had, we just had it clear clear cleared in sweden just a few months ago so it's mm-hmm. the first uh time this happens in sweden as far as i know so yeah, yeah. i agree i think it's you. been going on for a little while in the u.s there's a book by michael pollan um that uh talks about this um, yeah that uh, we published so. it in swedish Oh, you did. Okay, very good. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. I had um, him. I had him here a, a year ago, uh, giving right. a, a seminar. So yeah, mm-hmm. good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, finally, before we end, uh, Peter, tell me what is your. I mean, your work as a professional philosopher. What 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 gives you the most pleasure? When do you feel the most alive in your work? If you understand what I mean. Well, there's two different th- there's two different things in my work that uh, give me pleasure and make me feel alive. One is when I feel that I'm writing something that is uh, convincing in itself, that is a strong argument, that I've put it well, that um, it's something that should persuade any rational being. So if I have developed a, a novel or relatively novel argument, because of course you can always find that somebody thought of it before, that that gives me satisfaction and the level of you know. Knowing that my logical capacities are functioning well, but I'm also in, increasingly um, get pleasure from hearing from people about the impact that my work has had and and learning mm. about that. Uh, so I guess this is one of the benefits of getting older and having written things and uh, uh, other people then coming to read them and saying, you know, I read your The Life You Can Save or I read your Animal Liberation. It's uh, often one of those two or another book, The Most Good You Can Do. Um, And I've changed my life by uh, becoming vegan or by uh, pledging to donate a percentage of my income to help people in extreme poverty, um, uh, becoming an extreme uh, and becoming a, an effective altruist, and finding the most effective career that I could have chosen in order to make the world a better place. Um, you know, this is very rewarding too because a lot of people are skeptical about whether reason and argument actually has an impact on the world. And I feel that I can say through my own personal experience that it clearly does, that I know that there are quite a significant number of lives that have been changed both directly, the person's life has been changed through changing their behavior. And then indirectly, they've changed other people's lives by, for example, donating substantial amounts to effective charities. Mm. I can really understand that that kind of... Satisfaction. Peter Singer, it was a great pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for that. Thanks, Krista. It's been very good to talk to you again. And I wish you all the best with Freitanker. 